now, as I say, doing something a little different this morning. A sermon on prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And hear God's word. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you that they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room. When you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him in this manner. Therefore, pray our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive, that, uh, forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And let us pray together. Gracious Father, here we find a model of prayer. And we ask you, Lord, that we might take it to heart and that we might be helped as these disciples were by a sermon on prayer. Oh God, we ask you as they asked in Luke at the same setting... Lord, teach us to pray. It is our humble prayer. And help us now through the preaching to have that prayer answered. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from time to time, as you know, I like uh, to take a break from the series, though it isn't my regular practice, but to preach a standalone, or or I might even uh, dare call it a topical sermon, although uh, as an exposition of Scripture. There are certain uh, burdens which I have which may not, uh, I may not have opportunity to share it in the course of preaching through a book. Now, one of the joys of preaching through a book is that new burdens are formed that perhaps were not there before. I've been so eager to tell you about the new man, the life of the new man, the practice of the new man. And I can hardly wait to get back to it. But uh, one of the things that I have made a matter of personal study, both on the subject of Reformed liturgies, you notice we have prayer of confession and supplication, prayer of invocation, prayer for illumination. We have a prayer of intercession in the evening. All of that is in the liturgy now as a result of my own study uh, of Reformed liturgies and the, the prominent place that has been given to prayers. But I would also tell you that as a matter of personal study, uh, I found great benefit in reading Matthew Henry's lesser well-known book, A Way to Pray, uh, something that I would commend uh, to everyone. Well, it's been a matter not only of personal study, but, but of a growing burden on my heart to speak to this church on the subject of prayer. And so here I offer a sermon on prayer. Now, why do so, aside from what I've just said? In, a, in other words, what is the essence of my burden? Well, it is this. It is that my assessment of the church today is that a sad state of prayerlessness prevails among the people of God. The people of God in the American church are not a praying people. And there are many indications of this. For one thing, it is so by their own admission. Christians today do not even pretend that they pray. 
with any kind of regularity or with any kind of intensity. For instance, the practice of family worship or family devotions has largely fallen out of use. And thus the practice of family prayer is largely neglected. And I'm not talking about, Lord, thank you for the sandwich we're about to eat. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about family worship in which a large place is assigned to the prayers of the family. There's also the practice of daily private prayer, what the Puritans would call private worship or what in the more modern sense we call private devotions. And especially... Has anyone ever told you about the old practice of praying on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings that God would bless the preaching and the worship of God's people? God bless the worship service. God bring in the stranger, convert the stranger, convert the children. God bless the preaching, build up your people. Do you realize and has it ever occurred to you that the strength of our worship depends on the prayers of the people? Again, I say Christians today do not even pretend they do such things when such things used to be common. They used to be the regular practice. And then there is a prayer in the church. There is a general weakness of prayer in the church, especially with regard to the prayer meeting. Here is something that you find as a regular practice of the church when she is strong. The people of God praying, setting aside times to meet and to pray. What are they praying for? Well, that's what I hope to show you. But the point is, when there is real spirituality in the church, when the people of God are full of the Holy Spirit, there is a a desire to meet and to pray together. Well, you say, we don't have a prayer meeting. No, we don't. I don't know what to say to that. Who knows what the Lord might do among us? Recently, I was discussing with a friend I met in another church, a member of the Oviedo Church, a member of the search committee there, reflecting on, you remember what happened in that church, why they have a search committee. We were reflecting on what is it that accounts for the general state of weakness in the church today? His answer was the lack of the prayer meeting. I just leave that with you, Uh, except to say one more thing. Lloyd-Jones says the same thing in his a little treatise, what is, the, what is an evangelical? He says, this element of prayer is essential to the evangelical. It is his life, it is vital to him. You will find that evangelicals almost invariably have formed religious societies for the reading of the Bible, dis- discussing it together for prayer and for sharing, uh, sharing one another's experiences. This was the practice of the church in times past. Another indication of the sad state of decline with regard to prayer is this, that prayerlessness can be measured by its effects. What I mean is this. It's easy to tell when God's people aren't praying. You're able to tell because almost nothing is happening from a spiritual standpoint. God is hardly moving at all. What does that tell us? It tells us that people aren't praying. There's little of the activity of the spirit in the church and the nation. What is the cause? They aren't praying. You look uh, so readily at Acts chapter 2, but how quickly we forget Acts chapter 1. We find the church there in a state of weakness and even of fear. What were they doing? They were praying. Acts chapter 1 is the testimony of a praying church. Acts chapter 2 and beyond is the testimony of what happens when the church is praying and expecting for God to move. That's a prayer the Lord loves to answer. 
But when you when the Lord isn't moving, it's because we're not an Acts one church. Well, with that note of introduction, what I propose to do this morning is to look at what our Lord has to say on the subject of prayer. My interest is not to look at uh, these six petitions and to consider them in turn. I've done that before uh, many years ago when I preached Matthew, but to look more generally at what our Lord has to say about the subject in the spirit of prayer in the life of the church. And is there any better passage for us to look at and our desire to consider this great subject and to be a praying church and a praying people. And so I would divide the passage under these four headings. And the first thing is this I would ask is a question and that is do you notice how we keep saying when you pray? Verse 5. And when you pray. Verse 6. But you when you pray. Verse 7. And when you pray. Over and over that's how he puts it. You see that's the assumption he makes. And you remember that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Remember the setting. We read that his disciples came to him in chapter 5, verse 1. And so he opens his mouth and he speaks to them. And what does he say? What is the essence of the sermon? What we call the Sermon on the, on the Mount. Well, right away we see that uh, the, the sermon has to do with the kingdom of God. We find that in the Beatitudes. And in particular, in speaking to his disciples, he is telling them, What their life in the kingdom of God will consist of. The kingdom of God, you remember from the prior chapter, chapter 4, verse 17, is what Jesus came to bring. It's what he came preaching. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's chapter 4, chapter 5 and following. He tells his disciples again what life in the kingdom of God is like. Those to whom it belongs. And and what they enjoy is a result of him bringing it into their lives. And the main thing that Jesus is concerned to stress in the opening of that sermon, but indeed we could say throughout, is that life in the kingdom of God is a life that is full of blessing. That is the primary thing. Blessed are you, he says to his disciples over and again in the Beatitudes. Not that it is a life devoid of difficulty. Read the Beatitudes and tell me if you think for a moment that Jesus is saying that. Not at all. But a life which is nonetheless full of blessing. Why? Because it is a life which is taken up and which is full of God himself. A man to whom the kingdom of God belongs. A man who enjoys and belongs to the kingdom of God. He may suffer many things in this life. Indeed, he's bound to, Jesus says. But that does not stop him from being blessed. If anything, that too is a form of blessing for him. As he says in the final beatitude. And so that's the form in which the sermon is given. A sermon to his disciples. Those whom he came to bring the kingdom of God. But it is also, we notice, a sermon which is full of warnings. He isn't just speaking to his disciples. Well, he is just speaking to them. But in speaking to them, he has much to say about the Pharisees and the scribes and even the heathens. And he is constantly warning his disciples against the false teaching of the world. That's the heathens or the false teaching of the teaching teachers of Israel, the Pharisees. Beware of them. Don't do what they do. They're legalists, they're hypocrites, their hearts are full of this world only. That's another key feature of the sermon. And you notice, you find it in his teaching on prayer. When you pray, he says, you shall not be like the hypocrites. That's verse 5. Verse 8, he says, therefore do not be like them. And so on. Throughout this sermon, Jesus is contrasting the true with 
the false. But the primary thing I am concerned to stress, having set the scene, do you see here his assumption that he makes? That such people will pray. That his disciples will pray. When you pray, he says over and over. You notice he doesn't say in his admonition to them, I want you to pray. That admonition does not come in at all. It is rather when you pray, do not pray in this manner, but rather pray in this manner. And so the, the assumption that Jesus makes, if we have any interest in religion at all, if in any sense we deserve to be called his disciples, we will pray. In other words, you don't have to tell a religious man to pray. You have to tell him how to pray. And do you understand the difference between those two things? Do you see that even the Pharisees prayed? And while it is true that their prayers were false, still they prayed. In other words, the difference was not that they didn't pray and his disciples did. It was the form of their prayers and the spirit of their prayers. And so I ask you, do you pray? Is it safe for me like Jesus to take this for granted? You who tell me you're a disciple of Jesus. Well, do you pray? Can I tell you how to pray in this sermon with the assumption that you're already praying? Can I say when you pray? That it is your regular, constant, daily practice to go to God in prayer. Perhaps at times you tell me you're at a loss. You don't know how to pray. And you're therefore happy for this teaching. But still you pray. You pray even though you don't know how. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8. I would put it as strongly as this. A man is not a Christian if he does not pray. And why do I say that? Because he doesn't match the description here that Jesus gives, to, uh, gives of those to whom the kingdom of God belongs. If you don't pray, the kingdom of God does not belong to you. You don't know anything about it. Indeed, Jesus doesn't have to tell his disciples to pray. That isn't what you find. And that wasn't the trouble he was seeking to address. The trouble was this. That they were so perplexed and they were so distraught. They were and they were bound to be. By the sinful world in which they, they lived. That they needed to be taught how to pray. They needed guidance on the subject of prayer. Lord, teach us to pray, they say in another place. Not tell us to pray, but teach us how to pray. But the next thing we see. As a second point, is that Jesus is concerned to correct certain false prayers which are common. Assuming that the religious man prays, we need to look at the false prayers of the hypocrite. And that is uh, the leading emphasis of what Jesus has to say. Uh, we could call this the prayer of the Pharisee, but we could also call this the prayer of the heathen or, that, or of the worldly man. He says uh, that, that the heathens lift up empty phrases. They really don't even know what they're saying. They just think that God will be impressed by how much... They say that is the kind of prayer Jesus tells us not to pray the kind of prayer. Well, of the heathen in the one sense, which I just described or of the Pharisee who stands up and he prays to be seen by men. He wants others to say what a religious man he is. Did you see his prayer? He stood at the street corner and he, he raised his prayer to God just to be seen by others. It never occurred to him to pray to God in secret for God's own sake. Or you think of the prayer of the self-righteous Pharisee in the, in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke chapter 18. God, I thank you, he says, that I'm not like this man. 
That is the prayer of one who is self-satisfied, one who is self-righteous, one who trusts in himself, Luke says. One for whom it never occurred to look to God for salvation or justification. The prayer of the hypocrite, the legalist, the man who doesn't know himself, nor does he know God. He reveals both by his prayers. He hasn't got a clue who he is or who God is or how the two points relate to one another. And never did it become so clear as when you prayed. And so his prayers take a certain form. They are cold. They are lifeless. They lack true spirituality. They are done merely for effect to gain the praise of men. Indeed, on this point, John Owen, in his little book, uh, I can't remember the name of it now, but it is his book on uh, spiritual mindedness. That's the book. And I don't even think that's the original title. I think that's the new title Banner of Truth gives it. At any rate, we read that here at one point. And there's a portion of that book that I've quoted often. He talks about uh, the life of prayer and the believer, the spiritual minded believer. And he makes the same distinction. He says you could pray and yet not be spiritually minded at all. He says there is a kind of prayer that rather than strengthening grace in the soul destroys it. That's the prayer of the hypocrite. That's the prayer that Jesus tells us not to pray. But under this second heading, uh, correcting certain false prayers, there is also uh, this, and that is hindrances to prayer. That is to say, the prayer of the righteous man, which is nonetheless hindered. Jesus is also concerned to address this. The thought is a man might have a true concern to pray. He might be a Christian, a true child of God. And yet he finds for various reasons that he cannot pray or else that his prayers are hindered and what is worse, at times are not answered. And do you realize Jesus says here at the end, there, there are times when God will not listen. There are times when he will not answer your prayer, even if you are a child of God. What are they? Well, here is my list. The first, which Jesus uh, brings attention to, is forgivelessness. I don't know if that's a word, but I'll say it anyway. Forgivelessness. I'll, I'll set that alongside prayerlessness. Now, you see how that comes up twice in the course of the prayer. And you might wonder, why do we pray, not simply forgive us our debts, but as we forgive our debtors? The assumption is that we do not seek from God that which we do not give to others. Remember what Jesus is concerned to condemn is the prayer of the hypocrite. The man who does not forgive others and yet seeks forgiveness from God. That's a man God doesn't listen to. That's a prayer he doesn't answer. For if you forgive men their trespasses, he concludes, your heavenly father will also forgive you. He'll listen to you. His ears and his heart will be wide open to you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. If you have a cold, unforgiving spirit, you ought not to pray. You ought rather to seek repentance. Jesus says something similar in Matthew or excuse me, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Let's see. Verse 25. He puts it in a still more striking way. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Do you realize Jesus is saying that prayer is not something to be taken for granted? That there are certain prerequisites to prayer. That it is in fact a dangerous thing to pray to God. To stand in the presence of the almighty God and to ask anything of him. 
In the second place, faithlessness. And what I mean by that is that we lack faith. We go to God and we doubt he can do what he asks in that same chapter. I wish I'd, I wish I'd stayed there. Uh, Mark chapter 11, uh, just before verse 23, verse 22, he says, have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he wants. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you you are that you receive them and you will have them. And it's just after that that he warns against forgivelessness. Well, before that, faithlessness, have faith in God, he says. Or in another place, Matthew chapter 7, just following Matthew chapter 6, he says, seek and it will be granted, knock and the door will be opened, and so on. That is what I would call the law of the kingdom, that God is willing to bless the man who has faith. He's willing to grant to him the thing that he desires. Do you remember it it was said in another place that Jesus could perform no mighty act there because they had not faith? Oh, but where there was faith, There were many mighty acts of Jesus Christ. James himself in another place, chapter 1, verse 5. I won't read it, but I'll summarize it. He says, you lack because you do not ask. Or you ask in the wrong spirit. You do not ask in faith. So often what is lacking in our prayers, beloved, is faith. We are faithless in our prayers. That is, we are devoid of faith. That is the trouble. That's what hinders us. We don't believe that God can do the things we are asking him to do. We don't believe that we will receive anything from God. That's why we don't pray. Or that's why when we pray, nothing happens. And can we be surprised that when we aim at nothing, we hit the mark? More generally, sin. Or uh, under this heading, number three, lovelessness. Do you remember what Peter says to the harsh and the unloving husband? That his prayers are hindered. Are you listening, husbands, when when Peter says that? He's warning you that your whole relationship with God in prayer is in jeopardy. Do you notice that the man of prayer will live a certain way? That is always the the assumption. That his life will be in keeping with, with his prayers. Again, I say there are indeed certain prerequisites to prayer. That are indispensable to the life of prayer. Once again, we must be aware of the danger of hypocrisy in our prayers. There is no fooling God. But as a fourth point, unscriptural, or excuse me, unspiritual and careless praying. The day has come to a close. We say to ourselves, did another day go by already? Well, let me utter a few words before I fall asleep. Well, I ask you, can such a thing really be called prayer? We can be so careless in our prayers, so much so uh, that I think it is fair to say that we aren't really praying much of the time. But on the other hand, there, on the other hand, there is true prayer. Which Jesus is commending to us. And once again, I would note that I'm not interested in just going through line by line. I'm more interested in the spirit of prayer, the spirit in which we approach God, unlike the Pharisee, unlike the heathen. This is how the child of God approaches his father in heaven. This is what Jesus is describing. And here is the first thing that I would put under this third heading, true prayer. And that is that by prayer, we seek great things from God, not small things, but great. And that is always true of prayer. 
Have you not noticed that already in the passages which I've read in Mark chapter 11 and, uh, and Matthew chapter 6 and alluding to James chapter 1? The man of faith is one who seeks great things from God in prayer, always. He is one who is full of faith in God. He knows that God can do anything and that he will do all that he promised to do and nothing less. And so he prays for that. He prays the promises, as Matthew Henry puts it. He looks to God's word for direction as we're doing now, and he prays for those things. And there are certain characteristics of this prayer, aside from faith. Faith is number one. But then number two is humility. And that is what Jesus, in many ways, you could say, is most concerned to stress. In other words, in contrast to the hypocrite and the Pharisee and the heathen, Prayer is not a time, he says, to show off. Now, perhaps that sounds silly and almost unbelievable. But let me ask you this. Haven't you ever felt pressure in your prayers before others to sound profound as you prayed? To sound spiritual and mighty? Well, Jesus says that's what the Pharisee does. The thing that he's most interested to know is not what God thinks, but what man thinks. It isn't whether God is listening, but what man hears. And so he prays to be heard by others to impress. But such a thought you won't find in the heart of faith, Jesus says. The Christian is one who prays to be heard by God solely. That is the emphasis of what he's saying in Matthew chapter 6. And so he prays in a spirit of humility and simplicity. He doesn't, as the heathens do, heap up empty phrases just to seem pious by his long prayers. But rather... He goes to God in the confidence and assurance that God is listening and that he's known by God. Go to your father, Jesus says, for he knows already. The man of faith prays with this knowledge. That the God to whom he prays is already aware of all his needs and all his problems. In that sense, you see what Jesus is describing in the scene of the prayer closet, is that the man is alone with God in prayer. He has an audience of one, even in public that is so. And I can tell you honestly, and this is the only time it is true in the service, but in in the moments of prayer, I don't have any thought of you. I am taken up solely with God. It's the most liberating experience. The rest of the worship service in many ways is terrifying, but not the prayers. It is possible To have your focus directed solely to God in the presence of others. And that is precisely what Jesus is saying here. Of course, that's easiest to do in the prayer closet. You might have to go there. But you needn't do that to pray. You need only to realize that prayer is between you and God. It is a transaction between you and him. Man is more or less put out of the picture. And so prayer... I would define like this. Prayer is a spiritual exercise. It is an activity of the soul in the presence of God. The activity of the man who knows God and is known by God. A man who could say, Jesus says, our father. You see, he might even be with others. Why else would Jesus say our instead of my? Jesus recognized, well, you might utter this prayer in the presence of others so that you would include the others. You wouldn't just say, "Uh, God, my father. You would say our father, conscious of your brother. But that isn't the great point. Whether he prays alone or with others, the great point is this, that he's speaking with God and not with man. And I would illustrate this point in this way. Have you ever heard it said not to preach in your prayers? 
We're all aware of this and we can tell when a man is doing it. And we're, we're all right to become annoyed when a man does this. The man who is preaching in his prayers is really speaking to the people. He's concerned to make a point. He's, he's frankly abusing the privilege of prayer. Well, now that I have the audience of God, I'm going to set these people straight. Like I said, we have a right to be annoyed. We also have a right to say such a thing as no right to be called prayer. The man isn't speaking to God. He's preaching, even though his eyes are closed, even though he says he's praying. Well, don't preach in your prayers. Prayer isn't a time to make point to a point to others. It is a time, Jesus says, to speak to your father in heaven and to be taken up entirely with him. Or let me put it like this is another way of testing this point. Have you ever been caught praying? I would put that in quotations. Has anyone ever walked in on you praying and surprised you? You said, oh, I, 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 uh, excuse me, I was praying to my father in heaven. Well, there is a good test. It's a test of what Jesus is saying. Are there times in the day when you simply pause and speak to God? Perhaps someone walks in the room and they realize that you're praying. Does that ever happen to you? Well, look at the prayer Jesus gives. It's a model prayer. And do you see how he begins? The man who knows how to pray like Jesus taught us doesn't begin with himself. He begins with God always. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You see, there's a sense of familiarity. That's the third characteristic. A sense of familiarity. And that's what I mean when I say this man knows God and he's known by God. Verse 9. Oh, excuse me. Verse Verse 8, for your father knows the things you need before you ask him. The man of faith knows this. He's familiar with God. He knows that the father knows. In other words, in his prayer, he isn't trying to convince God of his need. God, if you only understood. God, if you only cared. God, do you know what I'm suffering? He doesn't pray like that. He's rather praying to one who knows. And who cares and who is able to help and who is willing to help. And that gives him confidence in prayer. Number four, the fourth characteristic. And that is what the prayer of faith is like. Confident that God hears and that he answers prayers. Confident also in the power of prayer itself as a means. The man who believes in prayer is a man who prays. He knows that things won't happen until he prays. But as he begins to pray. I mean to really pray. Then he knows things are bound to happen. He knows that the God to whom he addresses in prayer is a God who answers prayer. And he begins to look with wonder and anticipation of what God might do in his life and in the church. Uh, Do you believe that? And is that your testimony? Are you among the saints who can say, I am always amazed to see the many ways that God answers my prayers. Do you realize that is the testimony of scripture from beginning to end? God is a God who hears and who answers. And equally that God is a God who is displeased with the church that does not pray. Do you agree with James when he says the prayer of a righteous man avails much? But at the same time, you see on the other side of familiarity, and I confess I've lost count But uh, the next characteristic is the element of reverence. So you have familiarity and confidence, but then reverence. Not only our Father, but also immediately after that, who art in heaven. If only the church today could remember that second part of that opening phrase. She might do better in prayer. 
Jesus is saying this, the man who prays is aware that God dwells in heaven and we on earth. What a great distance, what a great distance separates us. As I approach God in heaven, the thought occurs to me, how can I address this great being who dwells in heaven while I'm on earth? Our father who art in heaven. And so you notice the element, not only of familiarity, but great reverence and humility. Beyond that, under the same heading, you see the first petition that he asks from God is this. Hallowed be thy name. That is God. Make your name holy. Make it known to be holy. You see, this is not a man who's light and breezy in prayer. This is a man who reverences God as God. He adores the majesty of his deity, his holiness. He acknowledges it. He prays for it. He prays that God's name might be hallowed by himself and by others as that name which is holy. Beyond that, you notice as you look at the six petitions, which I'll briefly do here, that all of them arise from the spirit of faith that I've been describing. The desire, number one, to pray the promises, that is, to ask for those things and only those things which God has promised to do. And, and let me remind you that God never promised to give you an easy and carefree life. In fact, he promised the opposite. And yet, how often are our prayers, Lord, make my life easy. Lord, take this trial away. Lord, my will be done, not, the, not yours. That is not the prayer of faith. We pray for those things he promised. And we pray, number two, for those things which are most spiritual and which tend most to promote his glory and not our own. And so Jesus says the praying man will pray like this. He'll pray for the kingdom of God. This is one of the things that David Brainerd was uh, was known for in his prayers. A man who was not only known for his preaching, but his prayers. He, he so impressed Jonathan Edwards in his own home, praying for the coming of the kingdom. That is to say, for the advancement of the church in this world, especially among the Indians. He prays for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, give us a little taste of heaven here before we get there. We realize this is in heaven, this is earth. But would you give us a taste of it? That's what the kingdom of God, it's a foretaste of the glories of heaven. And, 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 and the glory of heaven is this. It's that, that's God, that God's will is always done. Always done. There's no sin ever. Not even temptation. Oh God, your will be done even now. You see, not my will, but your will be done. That's what true prayer is. God, give us this day our daily bread. Do you realize what Jesus is saying there? The seemingly mundane point in the midst of these great things. And yet, faith realizes that even the least things which God gives are gifts from him. They are provisions out of his bounty. They are gifts of the kingdom. Even the bread which you eat. And it takes nothing for granted. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Give us this day our daily bread. God, forgive us our sins. Deliver us from our enemies, especially the evil one. That is the stuff of prayer Jesus is saying. Things which tend to promote our own salvation and the glory of God. Praying the promises. These are the things you ought to be praying for. These are the things that you ought to be believing that God will do for you. Confidently looking for them in your life as a result of prayer. But never expecting them apart from prayer. And this is the kind of prayer John Owen says on the other side that heals the soul, that strengthens the soul. The kind of prayer that doesn't destroy grace in a man's life, but the kind of prayer that strengthens it. This is the kind of prayer that always helps him. He may be in trouble. 
In fact, he often is. Jesus tells us he will be. But by prayer, he has helped and he has made better. He has found help for his soul. He's found grace to help in time of need. But then as a fourth point, we find in these words our Lord's encouragement to true prayer and to a life of prayer. And the first encouragement is this, and that is that Jesus himself was not a hypocrite, but that he prayed in exactly the ways that he taught us. Jesus Christ, you notice in the days of his flesh, was a man of prayer. Throughout the Gospels, we find him praying. And the second encouragement is that Jesus is telling us by his instruction to make a practice of prayer, to pray, to pray without ceasing, as Paul says, not the occasional show off prayer, but the life of prayer. That's what Jesus is describing, the life which is lived in the kingdom of God in humble reliance on our father in heaven is a life of prayer. That's the teaching. It is a life of prayer with the confidence that God always hears our prayers for he's our father in heaven and we are his children. And thus they will always be accepted and answered if they are offered in faith. God is not so unjust and unkind as to hear his little children praying and turn a deaf ear. And never did that become so clear to us as in the moment of prayer. Suddenly, in, in the time of prayer, we become aware of him and of his concern for us. Our thoughts and our lives and our souls are full of him. And so Jesus offers the assurance to us that our prayers are never in vain when they are offered in faith. And that we may expect that God always hears and always answers. And then there is the promise of Luke 11, as well as Romans chapter 8, that we are not left alone in our prayers. We may not know how to pray as we ought, but the Holy Spirit has been given to help us in our prayers, to make intercession for us. What does that mean? It means, Jesus is saying, that there's someone to help us to pray. And that person is God himself. God isn't just calling you to pray and then leaving the duty to you. But he's empowering your prayers. He's inspiring your prayers. He's helping you along the way. God himself, God, the Holy Spirit. He's leading us on as the sons of God. He's leading us in prayer. And beyond that, the goodness of the Father to whom we especially address our prayers. How little we think of him. How little we consider, Jesus says, his goodness. If only we realized how great and how good he was. We would find little or no difficulty in praying to him. And so he encourages us in Luke chapter 11 to pray like this. And these are my closing words. Luke chapter 11 verses 5 through 13. After giving us the Lord's prayer. And he said to them. Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him. Friend lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey. And I have nothing to set before him. And he will and he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though, he will not rise and give to him because he is a friend. Yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you for everyone who asks, receives and he who finds he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for, a bread, for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? 
If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And may such a thought, I say in closing, set us praying. uh, praying. For God is a God who delights to hear our prayers. That is uh, the summation of everything that Jesus has to say. Amen. And let us now come to the table. One of my favorite passages to read on the subject of the Lord's Supper, and it's less well known, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, not 11, but 10. He says this, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing, he's speaking of the Lord's Supper, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one body. Now, I ask you, what is the essence of prayer? Well, prayer, as I said, is communion with God. I don't think I ever said that in particular, but I I think that's a fair summary. It's the man who's alone with God in the presence of God. This spiritual exercise, this spiritual exchange, communion with God. But do you realize, Paul says, and this too is an act of faith, that in what we call is communion, we are communing with Jesus Christ himself. I'll read it again. He said, I speak to it as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. That is, do you have faith? Do you believe this? The cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body? Of Christ, Are we not thereby made by faith to partake of Christ himself? In that sense, Jesus says in another place, John chapter 6, in so many ways that if you don't eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, there's no life in you. Well, again, that's an act of faith, just like prayer. In so many ways, God enables us to commune, commune with him and to be strengthened in grace. And thus we call these things the means of grace, the word, the sacraments and prayer. Here is an opportunity, along with prayer, to commune with God. Judge whether what I say is right or not. Here, indeed, to faith is the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Those I would take to be words of invitation, but at the same time, words of warning. For Paul says in the next chapter that to the one who has not faith, who is unable to discern what these elements and these symbols represent, has no part in the table. And with those words, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful indeed for uh, the gift of the Lord's Supper. We recognize that after a spiritual sense, in the same way, these words which we utter in in this large uh, room full of people are, are actually uttered in heaven. Well, Lord, there is our faith. In the same way, we believe that. We believe that heaven takes an interest in these these simple beggarly elements. And God, as we seek to exercise faith, we ask you that through these means that faith might be strengthened as well in each of us. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.